folks, welcome to another episode of 10 Laws with East Forest Podcast. This week, I have a conversation with Dustin DePerna. He's someone that I met at the Esalen Institute when I was over there working on the group, group flow project and, um, that Mikey Siegel does. And Dustin was leading like the meditation portion, meaning like Mikey was using his, you know, biofeedback group tech stuff so we could see our heartbeats and breath rate and doing all this sort of integrated creative bio biotech biohacking and I was playing live music to that and interfacing with that system and Dustin was leading guided meditations that we are also doing sort of at the same time or in this whole process so he's he's a meditation teacher he's an author he uh He's a cool dude. So it's just someone that I linked up with and I instantly was like, wow, you've got a lot of great knowledge and life experience and I'd be cool to to share this with you guys. But before we get into that, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Charles Eisenstein. Thanks again to Charles. I just got back from spending a night out in the wilderness here and I really was, you know, theoretically in my backyard because... I can kind of see from my window here the area I went in the Grand Staircase National Monument. Actually, you know what? I don't even know if it's still the Grand Staircase National Monument, this area after what Trump did, but I'm pretty sure it still is. But it's like he changed the boundaries and that all happened. And people have been fighting it in court, but I'm not really sure like what, when that goes. I think it was immediate. I don't know. But it's not like they handed us a map and we're like, here's the new boundaries. You know, the old signs are still up, so... That whole situation is not something I really want to get into right now, but well, I'll talk about it another time. It's heartbreaking, <laughs> but I went out last night to, because it's been a while since I went out and just spent a night out on the land and especially out here. And there's something really special about sleeping outside and waking up in the morning and being you know, next to a river or in a canyon or wherever you are. It doesn't really matter. There's just a certain connection of sleeping on the ground. It's kind of like being barefoot from time to time. It's just something very human and something that feels important. And it wasn't easy all the time. You know, some of the hiking, I was trying to find my way and it was, it was raining. I was thinking about flash floods for a second there. But all in all, I'm just proud that I take the time at this time. I took this time just to get out. So I'm encouraging you to just do it. If you're feeling the urge, you're feeling a little disconnected, just go for a walk and try to get somewhere where there's some still natural things growing, this, you know, things that weren't planted or too manicured. Get out to that places that are still wild because that wilderness, it ignites something in you that's that's you too, right? We're, we're, the, we're really the same thing. So I'm coming from that energy. My body's a little sore, but in a good way. So let's see what's coming up. This uh, th- this weekend I'll be at, at Santa Barbara and I'll be in San Diego and I'm doing a little private thing in Arizona, but, uh, Santa Barbara on the 8th and San Diego, I believe on the mm, 12th, I'll be at Esalen in between that working, but that's just sort of like a programming private thing. But anyway, these events are both East Forest ceremony events in Santa Barbara and San Diego. And I'm really, really excited to have opportunities just to share this with the public. So if you know anybody in Southern California or you live in Southern California, please do come. You can find out info and tickets at eastforest.org slash tour. Uh, We'll get right into this interview with 
Dustin or more of a conversation, uh, but please do review this podcast. Just scroll down there. Five-star reviews and comments uh, make a big, big difference. And please, of course, say hi. Oh, someone else. Someone did say hi. And I wanted to read what they said just because it was like, well, it was really nice. This is a review, five-star review from Yogi Beers on iTunes. It says, I can't speak highly enough about this podcast. I'll read this. It's a little embarrassing. Trevor is so insightful and has interesting guests on the podcast. Yes, they are interesting. If you're into listening to conversations that go beyond the surface into consciousness, spirituality, and psychedelics, this is the podcast for you. Trevor also put out some really great guided meditations. Personally, this podcast is really meaningful as I connect with others on the podcast who have also had profound life-changing awakenings while using psychedelics. I love the music, the talks, the meditations, and just living, listening to the insights. So thanks, Yogi Bears. You know, that makes a really big difference because, you know, people will be cruising around, checking out podcasts, and when they read these, you know, they just glance at a few reviews. It's what makes them pull the trigger or not to hit that little subscribe button or even just like listen to one or two. And we're just trying to plant new stories and new seeds in people's minds and just say, hey, there's maybe some of these conversations you're going to pick up or thing or two that will help you live a little more wisely, a little more well. And I hope the meditations do the same or whatever else we can figure out to put out on 10 Laws with East Forest. So... That's enough chitter-chatter. Let's get to the banter-banter between my friend Dustin DiPerna. Excited. I'm excited to talk. I'm excited. We're finally getting a chance to do this. Me too. I'm grateful for your invitation. <laughs> so I can see you. You're in a glass, <laughs> glass house somewhere in Northern California. Is and you told me this was sort of like a sanctuary for you. Is this something you built, or was you were lucky enough that it was part of yeah, the house you're in? No, I built it. You know, I, I do most of my work from home and I see students here. And so I needed a place, I call it my temple, my sanctuary. Uh, I needed a place where I could meet with people in a really sort of relaxed and peaceful space. Was the connection bad? Is that why you're shaking your head? No, it's fine. I'm just looking at your space and how amazing it is. Um, describe it for people who can't see it. You know, I realize. Sure. So this is a, um, it's an all glass temple space made out of redwood, redwood mm -hmm. and glass, and um, surrounded by nature. I'm in the middle of the woods in Northern California. Uh, the space itself is surrounded by bamboo. It's filled with some Tibetan iconography, um, some fur rugs, nice cozy chairs. And it really just provides a space for um, healing and transformation you know, right next to my home which is what I really wanted desperately. And I was, you know, I've thought about the symbology of, of wanting a glass house. It's like, yeah, that's what I thought aspirations, about. My own aspirations for wanting just a transparent life. Like there's nothing hidden. I see this as like the opposite of a man cave. This is like <laughs> my, my uh, 
crystal, my crystal see-through palace for all to see. You know, there's nothing hidden. It's my well, own aspiration. Well, no one can throw stones at the glass house because how's the what's the how's the saying go? Um, yeah, because you'll Those what two I live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Something. Like that. <laughs> so, you, yeah, you're you're the one who shouldn't yeah. be throwing stones. I try not to throw stones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, tell yeah. me a little bit and, about uh, the, Trevor, the. Just let me let me also just say how grateful I am to to be getting to know you, Trevor. I mean, you and I spent uh, a long weekend together at Esalen Institute, mm-hmm. and we were both serving this vision of of how we can bring technology into a more sacred space. And I just want to say, you know, right off the bat, how uh, just really floored I was by your your presence, your um, musical skill, your talent, the way that you shared and created transformative experiences for everybody who was on this retreat. So when you first uh, asked me about this podcast, it was a no-brainer. I really oh, thanks, found it man. present with you. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was it was mutual getting to meet you too. I just saw that email from Mikey about possibly going back for something. So that's definitely like I saw that last night, and I'm like having to think that through if I can make make that happen. Exactly, a whole month, a whole month yeah. of September is available at Esalen for this, I, this kind of work. For us. I'm gonna be there in um, June uh, of 2019. I think it is doing like a East Force thing, Great. like a deep dive into the music and inner space. So I'm excited. Why don't, we, why don't we say a little bit about Esalen? Because I mean, I'm sure people listening to this podcast are interested in things you're doing there, interested in things I'm doing. What was your experience right. there? What was it like? I'm going to kill this video, by the way. I might bring it back on okay. just to, for bandwidth. Um, Esalen, I thought, well, I'll tell you, honestly, the thing that blew me the most was the landscape. It was, I knew it would be cool, but it was really, really stunning and beautiful. Uh, the way it hugs the cliff line and Big Sur there. I mean, the energy is incredible. And the hot tub baths are, I just was totally blown away about how they built them and how they're just like on the cliff, literally like midline on a cliff over the ocean. So I think it, it's mostly to me about the landscape there and mm-hmm. also the history. I, I, I was really came to being in my own psychedelic mindset, listening to a lot of Terrence McKenna talks and a lot of them were there. Mm. Um, yeah. So you can really feel the history of progressive thought, out of the box, counterculture thought and everything that happened there. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff I don't even know about that went down there, but you can feel it in the air. Well, you know, as, as- Esalen is really the home of, in the birthplace of human potential. And for those of us interested in exploring our own consciousness and the further reaches of what's possible, you know, it's almost like a pilgrimage site. It's like a modern American pilgrimage site. And, you know, you can feel it in what you're saying with both the history and the landscape. You know, I have to say that Esalen's this perfect combination of truth, beauty, and goodness, to use Plato's words. And with truth, it's like this exploration of our deepest potential, what is real reality what's our own potential within that reality or as reality goodness and that the intention there was to to really serve the transformation of any person who walks onto the land and uh, beauty is obvious just like what you're saying like walk onto this land on the cliff sides of big sur overlooking the vast expanse of the ocean and you're left with a sense of awe 
and a sense of self-transcendence, sort of feeling your own smallness in the midst of the grandeur of, of the Pacific. So, you know, it's a really special place. I hope, I hope everybody on this podcast has a chance to at one point in time in their life make that pilgrimage, you know, the modern, modern or postmodern Mecca of sorts. Yeah, I've been telling most people I know that even if they don't have a plan or they're not even planning on going to a retreat there, they can still go. Someone was telling me, I don't know if this is true, that you can get a special pass to go there at night, like midnight to 6 a.m. just to use the tubs. It's some sort of really cheap pass or something. Yeah, it's, I, it's even, I think, more limited than that. I think it's like 1 to 3 a.m. or something. It's like really <laughs> in the middle of the night. But yes, I've, I've heard the same. It's yeah, on the so, website. People can so check it out. So if you're camping in the area and uh, you just want to experience those tubs for a few hours, I guess that is the the minimum ask. But it's worth it. It is totally worth it to go to go there. Yeah, absolutely. So I was just wanted to just give some really short background on when you said the work you do with people. Like, what is mm-hmm. what is that work? Because I want to ask a few questions about. I know. I mean, I know sort of the, you work a lot with meditation, but um, more specifically, how does that manifest in how you work with people? Great. Do you mind, Jer, if I give a little bit of just like a bit of background? Because I think it'll help put what I do in context. Is that okay? Of course. Yeah, whatever you want. Yeah. So, you know, just as far as context goes, I often say that over the past 30 years, we've really entered into a whole new era as a human species and that you know a hundred years ago or a couple hundred years ago if we grew up in china we'd be exposed to chinese culture for our whole life if we grew up in the u.s we'd be exposed to u.s culture for our whole life etc but for over the past few decades you know culture has really become global in a certain way and as culture becomes global so does the potential for wisdom and the potential for what it means to be a human being and I've spent the past 20 uh, years or so working with an American philosopher named Ken Wilber um, in something called Integral Theory and also just doing my own deep practice and study of the world's great wisdom traditions and cultures to really try to answer the question, you know, what does it mean to be fully human? How do we live into our fullest potential? What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be uh, awake? What does it mean to be wise? And so in my exploration of those questions and my study with some really incredible mentors, I've, uh, you know, I'm slowly making my way on that journey of trying to discover how do we leave a, live a, a meaningful and, and good life. And so along the way, um, in addition to studying with Ken Wilber, as I mentioned, I've been uh, immersed pretty deeply within the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And in particular, the, the traditions called Mahamudra and Dzogchen. Uh, these are really just the practices that help lead one to a deeper sense of awakening, a realization of their true nature. And as I was on that journey, what became obvious is that I was learning so many incredible things from mentors. And I had developed an incredible like, horizontal connection to peers. And that naturally what happened was that there were people who were asking for advice and perspective. And so in a really simple and organic way, um, I began sharing some of the things that I learned. So I was sharing meditation, I was sharing some of the practices and some of the conceptual intellectual frameworks that have helped me along the way. Uh, and in doing that, that just, it's grown into a, uh, you know, one of the things that I 
love doing most, which is sharing wisdom with other people, learning from other people, and really asking the deepest questions we can about what it means to be human. And I've been you know, now doing that for you know, quite some time. And it's ever rewarding, ever changing. And uh, it's, it's teaching me more and more about what it means to be a, a vulnerable human being in connection with others, which is, you know, was a hard lesson for me to learn along the way. So, yeah, it's a bit about what, what happened. How did you and Ken Wilbur cross paths in the first place? Oh man, that's such a beautiful question and a long, uh, you know, is a long journey. So I, I, I was early on in my life, I had these aspirations to uh, have some sort of, sort of impact in the world. And, you know, I w- wasn't exactly sure, you know, what the right path would be for me. But at a certain point, I made this decision that, uh, oh no, I was in my late teens. And I thought, you know, for whatever reason, uh, celebrities and supermodels had become the new idols and icons of our culture. And if I could have some sort of impact with this group, if I could uh, encourage them to start getting interested in meditation and the transformation of consciousness, then you know perhaps there'd be a trickle-down effect in society. So I moved to New York. I was working in the fashion industry with these folks. I moved to Paris. I was working in Paris. You know, and after some time, I got pretty disillusioned. And uh, my solo <laughs> yeah. Herculean... My solo Herculean effort uh, wasn't very successful. And I decided to go become a monk. It was like the opposite extreme. You know, I think I'm an extremist by nature. And I moved to India to be a monk for a while. And that also was too extreme. And so having been disillusioned with the world of like uh, fashion and, and uh, potential cultural change at that level, having been disillusioned with the world of, of being a monk and a total renunciate, waking up at four in the morning and meditating and practicing, recognizing that there was something extreme about that. I said, there has to be a middle way. There's got to be something in between. And by that time, I was reading Ken Wilber's work. And I made this choice that uh, I, I wrote him a letter just saying, hey, you know, I, I told him my story and I said, I want to come work with you. I want to come spend time with you. And um, at that time, he, he didn't write me back, but one of his uh, co-colleagues did and invited me to come to Boulder. And uh, that started a really beautiful journey and a beautiful friendship. I worked there for quite a few years and um, developed a really close relationship with Ken. And I still have it. I feel very, very fortunate for that relationship. So you were essentially working with techniques developed for going into caves and working with these really old techniques developed by men a long time ago. And what about that was, or what part of that sort of ancient technology played a role in the disillusionment of you trying to figure out how to walk the walk in this modern world? I mean, for some people, it's great to kind of to drop out. uh, But that's something I was thinking about, uh, about how some of these techniques were developed for sort of like a very specific form of living at a very specific time by very specific people. Uh, absolutely. So let's talk about that. I think it's a great, I think it's a great question. So uh, the first thing I'll say is that it was not the techniques that felt limited. It was the ways in which I found it to be expressed through particular cultural matrix. So moving to India and living in a, um, living as a monk in India I recognized that the culture that I was embedded in there in this particular uh, monastery or ashram was very limited. Um, Mm -hmm. It was limited in the sense that it was traditional. 
where there wasn't a lot of critical thinking and there wasn't a lot of reflection about other modes of being or what was happening in the rest of the world. It was more of a sense that people had externalized their own inner authority to the culture and to the teacher and there just wasn't a lot of self-reflection. And you know, having grown up in the West, I was raised with a deep sense of, of critical thinking and a sense of reflection that you know, didn't allow me to sort of outsource my own authority. So that's the first piece is there was a cultural conflict. It wasn't a technique or a technology conflict. And so when I realized that, I recognized that I needed to be within sort of a modern or postmodern context and culture you know, I was raised in. And I needed to do that in a way that I could both learn within that culture and apply these techniques and technologies in a way that could be applicable to other people who were in a similar cultural context. And that's really been the journey that I've been on is helping to translate some of these ancient technologies, you know, as you said, that were originally done in caves into a context that makes them accessible for others. And the only reason I have any qualities or capacity to do that is because I've had to, you know, take that hard path of doing it myself. I've had to really lead and explore by example of how can we make this work and how to make it work in our own cultural context. So that was the journey. And it's something that I'm still on. And it's something that, um, you know, I think that you and I share in a certain way because from the conversations we've had, there's a deep uh, passion and a deep way in which these ancient traditions have influenced you. Yet here you are translating those teachings, those practices, those realizations through your music in a contemporary context. And, um, you know, we're, we're what, what Ram Dass calls Gnostic intermediaries or intermediaries between this, this Gnostic world of, of profound depth and meaning in our modern culture. What do you feel are the biggest hindering blocks to people um, working? I mean, in some level, I feel that there's so much information now and so many experiences to experience that we can drop into things of really any modality, but on a pretty light level, whether it's like just a YouTube video or a quick workshop might be a little of a deeper dive or... um, a podcast or a book. And so people have all these infinite options and choices and all of history's modalities that they can sort of build their own experience through. Do you find that to be a trap or do you find that to be a resource to sort of build your own religion? Yeah, you know, almost always with these these either or questions, it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, obviously the resource that we have at our fingertips, the fact that we can have access to these great lineages of transformation that have been you know, in a lot of ways kept secret for, for hundreds or thousands of years. I mean, that's amazing. But just as you say, there's a way in which sometimes we are so overwhelmed that we can't make sense of it. And I'd say the most right. important thing for people to start with is some sort of conceptual map to try to make sense of all the content out there. I have a, a friend who once used this phrase that we're in a, a content obese era like we have so much content that we don't know what is the healthiest or the best to consume. And so there's something about these, these maps or these conceptual frameworks, like the ones we get from integral theory and the work that Ken Wilber does, that really helps us to make sense of the, the growing uh, sets of, of details and information. And I'd be happy. I mean, it might be fun to go into some of that. Like what are the, what are the best pieces of content? How do we make sense of things with a, with a comprehensive framework? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially, you can just tell me what sort of turns you on the most lately or as of the past. 
Sure. So, um, one of the one of the frameworks that has become really helpful, and I'm just going to share one of the basics because this is something that um, allows us just sort of a starting point, and we can take this into so much granularity and detail. But it's a basic framework that that uh, Ken Wilber and I call "Wake Up, Grow Up, Clean Up, Show Up." And uh, let me just I'll just take a moment to break down each of those pieces because it's yeah. when we understand that each of these domains is important that we can start to make sense of all of the content, at least in these first couple categories. So wake up, grow up, clean up, show up. So waking when we look at the world's great religious and spiritual wisdom traditions, many of them point to the fact that there's it's possible to have a fundamental shift in our basis of identity, a fundamental shift in who we say and think and know and feel that we are. And that's a shift in which we move from a more relative sense of self or a small self to a universal self. And we move from a contracted egoic point of view to a point of view that's uh, boundless. It's a boundless whole of, of infinite awareness that's deeply interconnected with everything and everyone that arises. And that shift is one that results in a deep sense of freedom, a sense of liberation, and a sense of deep care for everyone and everything. And so the first category, when we take this broad look across cultures that we think is really important is this category waking up or shifting from a relative small self to a, to a big self, capital S self. So that's, that's waking up. And we yeah. can you know, look at that across traditions, across cultures, and we can look at it with much more nuance. And most of the meditative traditions um, focus on that fundamental shift of waking, waking up or enlightenment. The second category, which is called growing up, really comes from Western psych. So when we look at the traditions of developmental psychology, we look at someone like James Fowler's work on spiritual intelligence or uh, Jean Piaget's work on cognitive development or Kohlberg's work on moral development, what we see is that human beings can develop through stages of continued evolution. And for a long time, we used to think that people would grow up until about 12 years old, and then basically they'd stop their, uh, their development. But what's become very clear over the past you know, almost five decades is that you know, humans can continue to develop into adulthood into much more advanced levels of, of being. So these worldviews that sometimes are described in systems like spiral dynamics or um, in, in something like Wilbur's uh, stages or structures of of human development, these really show us that there are these potentials for growing up that many of us, you know, aren't, aren't ever exposed to. So growing up is a second dimension and growing up is important because when we start to examine the world's problems, we understand that there's a lot of complexity there. And what's often the case is that we aren't at levels or worldviews of adult maturity that can actually handle or address the problems that we're facing. So when we grow up, we increase our level to handle complexity and we increase our spheres of care and concern from, we move from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to cosmocentric. These stages are really vital. So this is the second domain of, of growing up. And then the third domain is something we call cleaning up. And this is a, you know, this is vital because cleaning up is really that dimension of shadow work or healing and integration, where we begin to come into contact with our own trauma and our own wounds. And by healing or integrating, what we're doing is we're not just setting things right in our own lives, but 
there's an intergenerational piece to this where we're actually healing the karma or the trauma that's been passed down through generations. And if we do the work ourselves, we don't pass it on to others or to family um, or to those around us. So it allows us to show up in the most loving and considerate and connected way because we're not acting from trauma, but we're responding from this deep sense of care and connection. So that level of, of boundless healing or that dimension of boundless healing is, is the, the third category we call cleaning up. And then finally, and then sorry for this, you know, sort of lengthy exposition, but it's just, it's sometimes useful. Yeah. The fourth category that we talk about is, is showing up in that we're not just doing this work of waking up, growing up and cleaning up. We're not just doing it for ourselves. We're doing this so we can show up in the world and we can have impact so we can show up in the world and really make a difference in policy or the systems that we're embedded in or the simple lives of others. So showing up with meaning and purpose and impact um, across all domains of life really becomes the intention, that our intention is to have a positive impact and, and toward the greater social good. So as a general framework, this wake up, grow up, clean up, show up, you know, helps to make sense of some of the content out there. What we often say is that if you're missing any one of these categories, you probably don't have an integral approach or holistic approach to your own practice and your own life and your own transformation. And you know, I think an intelligent uh, practitioner today would want to at least be aware of these categories and then might search out what are the best practices and the best tools and the best teachers and mentors who can really help guide me through each of these domains to live a holistic life. And of course, there's other categories that we might want to speak about. There's social dimensions, there's you know, nutrition and body dimensions, the whole realm of embodiment is critical. But you know, these are all cross sections to, to those four main categories. Yeah, and I'm sure it's not always a linear path. Like, you know, it's something that we we go in and out of all these different stages. And, you know, we're really just these spiritual beings in these meat bodies that have to deal with not just what it means, these existential questions to be alive and how to live. But then, you know, we get hungry and we have chores to do and we... You know, you have to go to the bathroom and you have to brush your teeth every day and then like things happen in the world. And uh, like, I think what's interesting is that the will can be there and the will is sort of something that I, I, I like to think at least that we're responsible for. I guess there's some debate over that too, but that's a deeper conversation. But nonetheless, it feels from my own experience that the environment or your meat body, your mind can fall into depression, whether that's a form of chemical depression or environmental or a mixture thereof, sort of a perfect storm, if you would, that can push your life like the ocean waves going this way or that way. And it's sort of like riding these waves of highs and lows. And what do you think about the the role of uh, feeling blue, feeling down, working through the muck when you, you have the will to work through these processes and work with teachers and, and new ideas and you really, you, you want to be on your path. But what do you say to people when they're, they're really in the fog of feeling, feeling down? Yeah, great question. You know, let me, I want to speak to you on two different levels and maybe we can even just explore it together a bit. And the first level is just on the level of heart. And that's that, you know, anybody who might be feeling that right now, like as they're listening to this podcast, just knowing that first and foremost, it's perfectly okay to feel whatever you're feeling. 
um, that there's no need to try to move away from or to try to deny the fact that you might be feeling something. But coming into contact with your own sadness or your own depression or your own brokenness is, is so important. It's been a journey that I've had to you know, find my way through. I mean, there's, a, there's a saying that we sometimes use called spiritual bypassing. And sometimes people on the spiritual path sort of bypass these difficult or sad or depressive aspects of being. And uh, so the first thing is just to feel okay with that and to know that, you know, you're not alone. It's part of the human experience and that, you know, there are others that we can share these experiences with and through community, there's a way through. Not a way beyond, but a way through. And it's, I think, important. And then this, this second uh, just level that I think it's worth mentioning is just the level of conceptual frameworks, you know. Um, I've spent uh, some time now teaching at Stanford. And in teaching at Stanford, we introduced this idea of human flourishing. And human flourishing is based on the work of a guy named Keyes out of um, Emory. And he's got something that he calls a two-continuum model. And if you just imagine a horizontal graph, and at one end of that graph, we have a sense of uh, feeling, he calls it mental illness, but let's just call it, you know, uh, there's a sense that we have unintegrated trauma in our bodies and in our lives, and we have these negative states that are rising. And on the other end of that graph, the horizontal graph, imagine that we have a, a life free of those. So we have a life free of mental illness or no mental illness or no negative states. But then he says, that's the domain that most psychological work has focused on for the past hundred years or so. But there's this whole other category of what it means to be human. And that's a vertical domain, so the vertical vector. So instead of the horizontal vector that moves from no mental illness or mental illness to no mental illness, there's a vertical vector that moves from languishing to flourishing. And that, the reason this is important is because you can be anywhere in those vectors. You could have a sense of depression but you might still be flourishing in life. By flourishing, we mean that you're living a life of deep meaning and purpose and contribution. You have positive social relationships that you're uh, engaging in a way that has impact. And so even if you have a sense of this depressive state that comes up for you or a sense of sadness, it doesn't mean that you can't also be living a life that has meaning, purpose, and contribution. And the reason this work is such a breakthrough is because we find that the biggest majority of the, the adult population, at least in the U.S., is maybe not suffering from a sense of, of depression, but they're suffering from a sense of languishing. So mm. that means that, that they might not have necessarily what would be considered sort of mental illness, but they don't have meaning, they don't have purpose, they don't have strong social connections, they don't have a way that they feel like they're giving back and they're contributing. And that's a big deal. So a lot of the stuff that we're doing at Stanford in the wellness education program is to help people live a flourishing life, even if, and even in spite of negative states. And the, the, I think one last thing I'll say about that is that the uh, founder of this particular two continuum model, uh, Keys, this is his name, um, he says, you know, I suffer from clinical depression. There are days when I can't get out of bed, yet I'm living a flourishing life. Like I'm contributing something, I'm doing something meaningful. I have good relationships. And so I just say that, you know, learning a bit more about what it means to be human in these different domains of human, uh, human well-being, whether it's languishing or flourishing, um, you know, all this is useful and all this is now available to us. And we can start synthesizing the very best of East and West and ancient and, and modern wisdom.
Well, I like that idea of a continuum and something that's a co-current as opposed to more of a binary approach where you're either one or the other. You know, you're happy or you're sad, so to speak. Uh, I also tend to think that we have sort of a unique... It's unique in modern life that we're not challenged as much as maybe we were historically as humans. And we're coddled with information and riches, even just having so much food. And I don't know, I wonder if you could argue that depression is also a modern affliction, one of affluence. Or just even being on the spiritual path is is pretty much because you have the time or the resources to start Mm. thinking about these things. And it's just an interesting idea because I know it's not to say that suffering, like having like all these hardships is a distraction, but perhaps it just gives you context for what it means to be human, to be alive. It it totally, brother. I I once heard uh, a teacher say that there are two people who enter onto the spiritual path. There are those (laughs) who have nothing and are so desperate that they'll, they'll, it's the only choice they have is to turn to spirituality. And the other group of people are the group of people who have everything mm-hmm. and they realize that they're still unhappy. And so, you know, I've, I've reduced this down to this very simplistic teaching of, you know, the path of privilege and the path of pain. And on each of those paths, we can find our way onto the, the you know, into the world of spirituality. But it's that group in the middle. It's that group that thinks, you know, they generally are feeling okay. There's generally enough to eat. There's generally enough, you know, satisfaction in life. That there's a sort of subtle level of unease that's always in the background that they don't even notice. So it's that group mm. in the middle that I'm more worried about. Not so much the people on the path of privilege or the path of pain, uh, because I think that those people tend to turn towards spirituality. Um, but you know, it's it's also worth noting because I know you have a connection to the deep wisdom of of India. That there was a, a teaching in India called the Parusharthas, and this is a teaching about the aims of life. And, uh, you know, I think it's very connected to what you're just talking about in that they say that the, the average human being um, naturally progresses through these aims. And, you know, these probably aren't linear, like you were saying earlier, but, but you know, it's fun to sometimes think about them in a, in a very natural and linear way. And that we start off thinking that ultimate happiness lies in pleasure, like sense pleasure. We think about right. like good foods or amazing sensual or sexual experiences or comfortable environments. That's where we start. But then we start to have some of those experiences and with a bit of wisdom, we realize, wow, like that didn't do it for me. There's still like this yearning for something more. And so the second, so like that's called Kama, Kama in the Burj Arthas. The second level is the level of, of Artha, which is the level of pursuit of money or power. We see this in our modern culture. It's like once people have had sort of all the sense of pleasures gratified, there's like, oh no, it must be. If I'm more powerful, if I accumulate as much money as possible, as much influence as possible, then I'll be happy. But of course, people who pursue that aren't any happier than anybody else, at least to a certain degree. And they say, okay, there must be something else. And so this this Hindu uh, aim of life says the third aim of life then becomes uh, dharma or or a sense of of contribution to the greater society. If we translate that into a modern context, it's like people then turning towards giving back and philanthropy and making an impact in a positive way, um, you know, doing positive social change, so human rights work, et cetera. And what ends up happening, even at that particular stage, is that it's, it's certainly fulfilling and it feels good to give back, 
but it's not ultimate satisfaction. Sometimes this people in this category end up getting burnt out. And so this great Vedic wisdom, this yogic wisdom says that it's only then that you turn towards moksha or liberation or spiritual realization, recognizing that that is the only thing that can bring lasting or everlasting happiness. And I think to your first point, we live in a culture in which you're right, there's like this pursuit of sense pleasure or experiences, or there's a pursuit of money and power and prestige and sort of the capitalistic values that are so around us. And, you know, some, some of us are interested in giving back and interested in contributing to the greater social good. But all of those still are relative when compared to ultimate happiness of true spiritual liberation. And, you know, it's not to say that any of those need to go away. We can pursue spiritual liberation while also giving back, while also you know, accumulating the right livelihood and the right amount of, of influence and, and money. And we can also have you know, delicious experiences. It's that our priorities are straight. And in our culture, that we, when we don't have anybody helping to outline these stages of life for us or these aims of life, it's sometimes difficult to make sense of it. So you know, it's all about learning. You know, so much we can learn from, from the wisdom of, of ancient times and bring that into the current context. Yeah. What role do you think, I mean, I heard someone say the other day, they took some kind of, I think it was Hamilton Morris on a podcast, who's the vice guy, and he was talking about some some drug he took, I've never heard of it, some obscure drug for sleep, but he took way too much and it pushed him into this realm where it's quite challenging, but basically he had a recognition in his mind that the only true consciousness was death or sleep. <laughs> and like, and I started to think about like all this searching we all do, whether we know it or not, sort of as you're saying, uh, certain relative to the awakening or awareness that we have to be reunited with our oneness, to re- be reunited with God, to be reunited with the source of our becoming. And we're all flailing in a sense to do that, some with more fancy techniques than another. And um, perhaps it's all, it's all just sort of a, a running in spirals or circles inside this binary consciousness that we're in. And we're always trying to get into non-duality, non-consciousness, where maybe we start to tap into that with sleep or even death, where we finally find perhaps what we're looking for. But what role for you of yourself or do you think sort of psychedelics as sort of a plant medicine has played or can play as a tool to show us something, to uh, teach us something or to help us have a felt experience perhaps of some of these states that you're talking about? Great. Well, you know, if we look at just a broad swath of human cultures, there's a huge uh, portion of those cultures and, and these ancient wisdom traditions that participated in the use of entheogenic you know, plants or, or other other forms. And my sense is that um, they can be incredibly powerful as on-ramps and as introductions. And I think, you know, when I use that framework of wake up, grow up, clean up, show up, I often... Uh, articulate the use of psychedelics or entheogens within the category of of waking up and cleaning up, but more specifically cleaning up. Let me say why. So when we work with something like, say, psilocybin, or we work with something like ayahuasca, it's true that there can be a fundamental shift in identity. There can be a sense of awakening. It's temporary. It's 
very possible that that can happen. But if we really start to examine what the, I think, more useful long-term benefit is, is that when we work with, with entheogens like this, what happens is that we gain access to all kinds of domains of our, our psyche, our own shadow, our own unconscious, uh, that otherwise aren't accessible. And it, it's in these places of our own psyche that we store karma, and that we store our own past experiences of trauma. And if, in fact, we can work with these psychedelics in such a way that allow us to liberate, reintegrate, heal these aspects of ourselves, then it's serving our own evolution. It's like we have more fuel for our further growth. And I think that can be really positive. But one of the things that I, I often say, and I, I know that many others hold this perspective as well, that I think the use of psychedelics is, is best done in conjunction with a practice of meditation and or yoga, something that allows you to endogenously produce these positive states that produce them on your own without any sort of external you know, stimulus. But when done in uh, conjunction, when psychedelics are done with a study and regular meditation practice in community or with the guidance of a lineage or teacher, man, I think they're, it's unbelievable the transformative power they have, but uh, just need to be done in the most intelligent way possible. Yeah. I th- from my own experience and from anecdotal experience, I think having some form of practice meditation or breathing and in combination with the actual psychedelic experience is sort of the doorway to uh, mm-hmm. the really deeper layers of, of the teachings and the experience itself. I mean, I, it was yeah. a profound experience for me of just recognizing what the breath actually was. I mean, the sort of stuff you read about and hear about all the time in yogic philosophy or all over the place, the prana. But I actually Mm. got to have a felt experience of what that meant before I even knew what that meant. And I always think felt experiences are a million times more powerful than anything you intellectualize or read about or are told. I mean, that's really where the learning is. Um, You can't argue with it. Yeah. Would you be willing to share a bit about about you know how that's impacted you in your life the the felt or learned experience? I'm just curious if like your viewers know much about your own sort of experience versus like the conceptual frameworks you might talk about. Well, I've I think I've yeah sure I've spoken about the psychedelic aspect for me, but I mean just in a larger sense, everything that the meat of the soup is. It's just sort of experiencing your life, which for me is this one giant felt experience. It's how I feel it. It's sort of the emotional content that comes up as opposed to the historical markers of what actually happens to me in the, in the world. It's sort of how I, how I navigate that and how, how I feel about it is the laboratory of, of what it means to be alive. And I don't know. I've always sort of had this existential crisis or or how did you call it before it wasn't like you're depressed but it's more like a it's more like a low level languishing yeah Yeah, i definitely feel like i've languished i mean i've had some definite periods of depression for sure but i there's kind of an ongoing i don't want to say i'm a pessimist i want to i want to feel that i'm an optimist but i i feel that uh i have to work with something in my mind that says it's work like it's work to be here. And that's something that I think has a lot to do with just how I grew up as a child and and how I was taught how to look at the world from my parents and so forth. And 
just all the sort of perfect nuance of what it means to be incarnated for me in this particular mm. trip that I'm in. But that's, I'd say if I had to sum up like all of my efforts and all of my approaches, including like the music and the work I do, it's sort of trying to cultivate a feeling like deep down, there's that candle flame all the time of agape consciousness, of brotherly love, of knowing that eternalness of what it all is. And without that sense of mindfulness that I've probably experienced from a few unique psychedelic moments and also heightened moments of existence in my life where whether they're highly pleasurable or highly painful, that it's sort of like an electrified sense of the current of consciousness that you can't be in all the time. It's too intense. It's just like you'll you'll fry out, you'll burn out, but that you touch into these these waters to be like, oh, that's me too, and that's part of me all the time, and it's very very humbling. But it's and it's also, I mean, it's beyond. I don't even know how to describe it. It's just sort of that God consciousness that's part of all of us at the same time, and so it's. It's on one hand, perhaps trying to get back to that, but it's also trying to cultivate that. And it's also, as you spoke about this, living with something concurrently at the same time, like we're, mm -hmm. we feel that. And then I also feel like grumpy or, <laughs> or whatever it is. It's like, you know, hungry or whatever, uh, you know, all the animalistic things like we're animals too. And that's, what's so crazy about being human is like, we feel we have this spectrum of beingness from the lowest, you know, like we share rock consciousness. We share the earthly, just physical matter consciousness and these all these layers of octaves of consciousness through the plant, through the animal kingdom, through uh, our ability to be self-aware and through our ability to have cosmic consciousness. And it all it all exists at once, which is, I think, what makes humans so incredible, Uh and even with that, like, you know, we can have things like the ability to have this conversation and be self-aware and, and, and kick around crazy ideas and then write music and create art and have have comedy and a sense of humor. All these things are just so absurd. And then on the face of that, you know, we, we have all this animal stuff, you know, like our sexual desires and just the like the fact that we have to go to sleep every night is just crazy. Um, or that we have to eat every few hours, you know, it seems impossible almost to like, you know, if, if, you, if you told me like, that's the gig that we're signing up for, I'm like, that sounds like, what a, what a, what a load of work, you know, that we have yeah, to like absolutely. input food constantly and take craps and we have to get jobs. And <laughs> so anyway, my experience is one of sort of this, this strange self-awareness of just trying to keep all that in balance. And so I think where I've been at lately in the last few years is just, just trying to like see all of that at once. It's, it's being an act of service, being kind to myself, being kind and honest with others. And it just comes down to those basics of just like telling the truth. And that, that alone is like hard enough and just speaking the truth and, and, so I think like this podcast and, and my music and my work and the relationships I have in my life, I'm, I'm really just trying to find my own way through and kick around these ideas. Um, that's why I want to talk to, to you and, and other people. It's just to sort of, 
it's sort of like clearing out the cobwebs and looking in the shadows and saying, is it this, is it that? And maybe the answer is it's everything. But uh, mm. the felt experience, I think, to get back to your original question, is everything. Because there's nothing, there is nothing else. And that's that's really where the, 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 the pudding is, is just what it means for you to be alive, to look out of these eyes and connect that mind and heart. And that's something I want to ask you about was the mind and the heart. That's something you hear kicked around a lot, bandied about as sort of this sort of cute concept. But there is this idea of this heart consciousness, this heart knowledge, this heart knowing, sort of your intuition. And then obviously our mind or the little mind and the big mind uh, that I've heard spoken mm-hmm. about in Lakota traditions. Or um, Can you speak a little bit about that for yourself or in some of these traditions or like ways of connecting the two or working with the two or maybe not looking at it so binary? Mm, yeah, please. I'd love to. So, you know, my, uh, I'll speak from my experience because I think that's the best, the best way. And as, you, as you're saying is that, you know, I, I personally took a path where um, I think I was always, always sort of a, you know, a heartfelt guy. I would, when I was young, I'd lie in bed and I'd just sort of, I didn't have any context for prayer and I wasn't raised in a spiritual religious family, but I'd lie in bed at night and just like give thanks for everything in my life and wish the people around me were healthy and happy. And so there's sort of a sense of heart connection that I've really feel like was part of the fabric, somatic fabric of my mm. being, fiber of my being. But I, I want to just say something about how I've experienced the process of deepening along the spiritual journey. And that's that I really experienced this, um, you know, first, first levels of awakening being awakening of the mind and coming to directly know and see and realize what you were pointing to, which is the, the sort of in separability or the non-duality of reality that the awareness that seems to be in here and everything that seems to be happening out there is actually the same that there's mm-hmm. this an, a thread of continuity between what seems to be inside and outside or the awareness and that which is witnessed now that's a pretty that was that's such a that in itself itself is, is amazing it's like the miracle of, of that, of that level of sort of mind realization is it's just so beautiful. And I found that as that deepened in my own practice, there is a way in which that realization moved from the head into my heart and moved into a deep trust and a deep connection with everyone and everything, a sense of care, like a sense of just wanting everybody to be mm. happy to share this experience, wanting everything to be free from, you know, pains and sorrows. So there was a way in which that realization moved from the clear light of the mind to the clear light of the heart, sort of really dropped into my heart. And I'll say that that, you know, continues even further and that as it deepens and continues to progress, there's a way in which that clear light of the heart drops into the clear light of the body, really drops into my base. And there's a way in which I feel my body and my gestures and my movement and the ways that I eat food, the ways that I touch other people, the ways that I'm, I'm showing up in my being, in my body. I find that to be now like this really profound level of integration and connection. And so there's like a way in which there's a, a descent from head to heart to body and 
without it being linear. You know, there's a way in which all of these begin to really flourish and come online and become part of the integrated whole of the spiritual path. And, um, you know, that was my path. But I know other people who start with the body. They enter through the gateway of the body. They find this body as something that's like they're so amazed by this experience of, of being in a physical body that that becomes their doorway. Or there's other people who just enter through the heart, like that is their gateway through love, through connection, through devotion. And all these are gateways, but what I do think happens is, there, is that there's a rounding out on the spiritual path, that there's a rounding out of this mind, of this heart, and this body as an integrated or seamlessness begins to unfold. And to me, that's, you know, that's aspirational, that's so exciting. That means that nothing is left out on the spiritual path, that everything becomes included. And I think that was one of my biggest, uh, like biggest blocks along the way is I thought that I'd have to give up everything. I thought that I'd have to give up my love for my wife, for example, or my children, or I thought that I'd have to give up this amazing experience of being embodied. And it turns out that along the spiritual journey, you know, everything's included. Everything. everything. Yeah. 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 Everything. Uh, yet none of it's yours because there's really a sense of transcendence that also knows that everything's everyone's and you can rest in that knowing and that comfort and that ease of being of, of being everything and in that way having everything without a haver so it's been a, it's been such a sweet journey brother I like the idea Still of the sacredness in, in of the mundane you know the idea that everything everything is part of the experience everything is holy and the small little actions uh are just as sacred as the the ones that are bigger and it's sort of like when your whole life becomes a walking meditation of sorts yeah the tibetans call that mixing practice or blending practice where you blend the the depths of the realization with everyday activities and you know it's for me it, one of the biggest stumbling blocks on my journey is one that sort of had these aspirations or these ambitions for these grandiose visions of impact. And um, it's been so amazing to just watch those you know, sort of dissolve or go up in smoke and recognizing that the simplicity of just kindness, like you were saying, being truthful, being kind, showing up in a way moment to moment that has impact, that's equally as important as some sort of large-scale impact. And you know, yeah. that's where the, the, the deepening has really occurred in my life and the part of where the deepening is still occurring because I find myself sometimes trapped in those um, conceptual frames and need to yeah. bring myself back home. It's like giving up the answers, living in the question becomes yeah. more of like uh, the realization <laughs> of the mystery being the thing that... Uh, is the seat of your consciousness as opposed to the destination. Yeah, and, and recognizing in that way, in the mystery, that there's a violence and certainty. Like, I recognize that, like, I spent so much of my life, even around spiritual content, spiritual ideas, so certain about things and how violent that is. And coming into that innocence and the softness of the mystery of the question, as you're referring to it, it's just, it's really sacred to be in that space of curiosity, in essence vulnerability yeah i think that's why things like mystic poetry or music or art are some of the best ways to see representations of this stuff as opposed to like i mean you think about things like um, the ten commandments 
And it's, um, I understand sort of where that's coming from as a way of like, let's just distill this down. <laughs> let's forget all the concepts. We're just going to give some folks some rules. And uh, we won't even really explain like what's behind it, uh, but at least that'll get them going. And I'm sure this is a whole another conversation we'll have to get into another time about uh, religious teachings and how they've been translated and mutated and so forth. But I think these days there's so much information out there and we all have the ability to make choices. And it really comes down to uh, that uncertainty and the fluidity of just your day-to-day experience and learning about what it means to to be kind, to, to be truthful, to be loving, and making mm-hmm. choices from a place like that. But Dustin, before we wrap up, uh, I don't know if you'd be willing to, but we did so many short, little, wonderful, concise meditations at Edeslin, and mm-hmm. it'd be really kind of nice as a way to end to maybe if you could guide us through one of your choosing. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Sure. Um, like five minutes, three minutes, 10 minutes. What's your hope? Um, how about five or ish? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be, I'd be happy to do that. Sure. So uh, if everybody listening, if you could just uh, find a place where you can sit, but have your body supported. Um, if sitting isn't possible for you, you can lie down um, or you can stand up. But the, um, the ideal position is that your body feels supported. So you want to be supported by the earth. And the second piece I'll say about posture is just that you want your body to feel upright and alert yet soft and innocent. So upright and alert, but you're not holding any tension, not holding anything too tight. You're letting the whole front of your body be open, receptive. And then just take a moment to relax any tension in your jaw. And relax the space between your eyebrows. And for this meditation, you can close your eyes. And start with just a gentle scan of your body. So softening the muscles of your face. Softening your neck, your throat and shoulders. Softening your arms, just relaxing. And relaxing down through your wrists, your hands and fingertips. Just soft and relaxed. And moving down through your chest shoulder blades, just feeling your whole torso relaxing, softening. Just resting through the lower back, the belly, the hips. And softening, relaxing your genitals thighs 
the muscles in your legs just beginning to soften, relaxing your kneecaps, your calves, your shins. And relaxing your feet, the tops of your feet, relaxing your toes and your toenails, and relaxing the soles of your feet. And whether you're lying or sitting or standing, just feeling yourself now resting into the earth. Just resting your whole body into the earth. And then feeling your body as a whole, just calm and peaceful. Feeling the whole body all at once. And now just visualizing all the cells of your body, millions and billions of cells in your body full of light. It's as if all of the cells of your body are like miniature stars or suns. And just feeling that sense of radiant light from every cell in your body as if that light has a deep sense of healing and a deep sense of positive well-being that emanates from every single cell. Like your body has become a galaxy of radiating suns or starlight. And feeling your whole body bright, Calm. And full of deep healing and well-being. As every cell radiates with light. Millions and billions of points of light. Like a galaxy. And then finally, imagine that that sense of healing, calm, positive energy is radiating and touching every being everywhere. Like you're sending a rain of blessings, a rain of blessing light on every being everywhere, wishing them well. May they be free from suffering. May every being be saturated in this beautiful light of unconditional love. And may every being come to know their true nature as the unbounded wholeness and unconditional love. And then just take a deep inhale in and 
exhale out. And you can relax your meditation posture, open your eyes and bring the meditation to a close. I dig it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Thank you. Um, the, that's perfect. Um, connect with you. Yeah. Well, in this cosmic state of consciousness, how can people find you before I close this? I will link to you in the show notes here right below it. Yeah, DustinDiperna.com is the best way to find me. I'm teaching at Esalen this December. I think it's 7th, 8th, and 9th, whatever that weekend is. People are welcome to join. That's a meditation retreat. And uh, always doing stuff uh, here in California. I'm teaching in China quite a bit. So we'd love to people to stay in touch. Dustin, D-I-P-E-R-N-A, Diperna. That's right. All right. Dustin. Well, like I said, I'll link to that. But man, there's so many things I wanted to get into about like religion and all sorts of weird concepts. Maybe we'll do this again sometime and get into some other stuff. I'd love that. Thank you, Krishna, Trevor, Peace Forest. Thanks, buddy. Well, there it is. Thank you, Dustin, for talking to us. Always a pleasure, and I know there will be more. This music that you're hearing in the background is called Samana, and it's from the album Prana, which are five songs that recorded, they're actually recorded live on the winter solstice of 2012, which was a very fabled night that uh, <laughs> we all were waiting for our galactic activations. But then I think we, we woke up the next morning and realized, I think that's like kind of a generational thing. You know, it's like we're going through everything that was sort of bandied about, but it's, it's just something that happens uh, in time. You can see it all happening, right? The great galactic change is... is it's right here. It's just these transitions are happening in every direction. Anything from climate change to what you find going on inside yourself. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, check out eastforce.org for these tour dates this, this weekend and next week in Southern California. I'm East Forest. I'll catch you soon. Keep walking your walk. Don't take any shit. But if you do, do it with grace. <laughs>